Good morning. Welcome to College Dell Community Church. We're so glad you're here with us today. I'm looking at that video and I'm getting moved, you know, for Jesus and thinking what a great thing this is as we celebrate Christmas. And I thought, what if he never came? What would we be like? What would our world be like if he never came? What a dreary thought that was. And I'm glad I don't have to worry about that because he did come. And, and we're uh, very excited that Jesus did come. Um, again, just want to welcome you. Um, we're going to do something different. Uh, we, do, we did this last week where Jesus gets the first gift. Uh, what we're going to do is we have two baskets down here. Um, if you don't have the special Christmas envelope, you can use a regular tithe envelope, whatever you'd like. But what we're going to do is we're going to come down the center and then separate and go back to the sides. So after I pray, I'm going to invite you guys to come down uh, for Jesus gets the first gift. But let's start our worship service with a word of prayer. So I invite those who are able and willing to kneel. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you so much for your love, for your goodness, for your character. Lord, as we celebrate the Christmas season, um, we can't imagine what you gave up for us. And we are so grateful for that. Lord, may we respond with the love that you showed to us, with love back to you. And Lord, as we open this worship service, I want to pray for um, that you would send angels and your Holy Spirit to saturate this building that we may feel your presence like we've never felt before. And be with Pastor Nate as he brings the word of life to us today. Speak through him, Lord. May the words he speak come directly from your throne. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, now I invite you to come down. You can put your offerings down here. And then again, if you just exit out both sides. Thank you so much. Good morning, happy Sabbath. Anybody remember having substitute teachers in school? Yeah, those are always great days, right? Because you didn't really learn anything. The substitute's job is just to keep the lights on. I'm just kidding. Some substitute teachers are great. Uh, today, I am your substitute worship leader. Uh, the one who was supposed to be up here had some wonderful Christmas songs planned for you. Uh, and I got a text message at the 11th hour, so. Sadly, I don't have a ton of Christmas music prepared, but we'll try and fit some in here. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul. Worship his holy. It's a new 
It's time to sing your song again Whatever may pass And whatever lies before me Let me be singing when the evening comes So bless the Lord, oh my soul Oh my soul Worship His holy some in that chest lockbox thing down there. See, I'm very unprepared today. I apologize.
song now ring as we praise the king of kings as we listen to the song to as we listen to the song let us join and sing along 
Satan now has lost his claim For the grace of Jesus came With the sound of caroling Toorooroo-roo, pat-a-pat-a-pan With the sound of caroling Let us all a triumph sing Sing no say it, Abner. That was impressive. <laughs> so first, first service, I was, I was talking. I got here just right before it started, and Abner came up to me. He's like, Pastor, you got to help me with something. He said, I- I'm going to sing a song for first service, but you got to invite everyone to hear the song for, for this 1130 service. I've, I've got two songs I want to sing. And as he was walking down the stage, he said, now you understand. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that gift of music. And I'll tell you what, I love celebrating the Christmas season with this church community. It has been fun. For those of you who've been able to come out and enjoy and worship with us as a community, this congregation knows how to celebrate Christmas. Uh, From Christmas in the foyer that we had a few weeks ago, enjoying all of the food, our choir singing there for us. One Bethlehem night, how many of you guys were able to come out to that just not, not too long ago? This is my first time seeing this musical production of the story of Christ's birth, amazing. Amazing. In fact, can you give a round of applause to our church choir and everyone who was part of that? I loved it. I loved it. And of course, this last week, for all who were able to, our Christmas concert, being able to hear some of the most beautiful music you could imagine, sung by 
our church members and friends. It was, it was a blessing. I'm happy to continue to celebrate the Christmas season with you guys here today. Christmas is worth celebrating, isn't it? I mean, there's so much to celebrate. So, much, so many fun ways that we do celebrate. Now, there's the food, we all love that. There's getting together with families. Hopefully you love that, I do. If you don't, I'm not here to judge. There's all sorts of ways to celebrate. One of the ways that we celebrate is gifts. Gifts, I mean, we, we like them. You know, they can be neat, I suppose. I have a question for you as we start this morning. Have you ever got a gift but lost it? I was thinking about this. A few years ago, I was, I was preaching. And when I preach, I, just like anyone else, try to pray that God will give me some illustrations, something that will make sense. And so I was praying about, God, can you give me an illustration? I was preaching on Luke 15. It was the story of the widow, you remember this, who lost her coins. Do you guys remember the story? Lost 10 coins, fell on the ground. And I was like, oh, you know what I want to do? I want to get my hands on one of those coins. We had a member of the church where I was pastoring who had an extensive ancient coin collection. And so I went to him, I said, hey, do you have one of those drachmas? Do you have one of those things? Absolutely. So he, he entrusts me with this gift of this priceless, priceless biblical artifact coin so I can hold it up in my sermon and show it to people and stuff like this. And I'm excited. I'm like, thank you, God, for giving me a cool illustration. So I go to church, I preach this sermon, I use this really cool illustration, this gift of this coin. It's fine, it all, it all works out well, and I'm, I'm feeling good about it. I don't, I don't think about it again until the next Sabbath I come to church and I see my friend, the collector. And it's then that it hit me, I had no clue where his priceless coin was. No clue at all. I just avoided him that week. It's not lying if you don't say anything, right? So he didn't ask, I didn't tell, I just didn't say anything for him, just kind of tiptoed around the, the lobby so we didn't have to talk, and went back that next week, shredded my house, looking for this lost coin, pulling back the couch cushions, pulling out every drawer of the house, trying to find this lost coin the whole time, being well aware of the crazy irony of this. I had prayed for an illustration illustrating a woman who lost the coin, and I lost the exact same type of coin only 2,000 years later. It makes me wonder sometimes, do we learn our lessons from the Bible? I went through looking for this coin, and it was a terrible feeling trying to do this. I didn't know what I was going to do, and as I approached this, the next Sabbath, it's like, I mean, I can't keep avoiding this guy. I didn't really know what to do. I went with my head kind of hung down low, not sure what to do. And I wasn't, I didn't know. The, ser the service was over. I saw him. I knew he was going to come towards me. And I was like, I, God, I just, help me. And I felt in my pocket. The coin had been in my suit pocket the whole time. It was safe. It was returned he never knew about it, unless he's listening right now. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> kind of a funny story. It's kind of funny. I, I've, I've tried to make a deal with God, being careful about what I ask him to help me illustrate. I'm not sure what kind of experience he'll put me through. Uh, but the point is this. It's not fun to lose a gift, is it? This morning, I want to explore something with you. As we think about Christmas... As we celebrate the story of Jesus, I want to ask this question. What if God has a spectacular
spectacular gift for you, but you've lost it. What if God has given an amazing, spectacular gift to you, but you've lost it? Lost it not in the drawers of your home, not in between the cushions of your couch, not in the pockets of your clothes, but what if the spectacular gift that God wants you to have has been lost in the fear of your own heart? That's what I wanna talk about this morning. I wanna ask that you would bow your heads for me, with me as we ask God to be with us as we explore this in a message entitled, That It Might Be Fulfilled. Would you bow your heads with me? Our most gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you, we know. The Bible says that you are the giver of only good gifts. Lord, I believe you have a gift that you intend for us to have, Lord. And we ask this morning as we dive into your word that you would remove all fear from our hearts, Lord, that we may see the spectacular gift of Christmas. We ask this in your name, Jesus, amen. We're gonna dive in deep to the story of Matthew this morning. If you have your Bibles here, if you're watching online, we welcome you online viewers as well. Turn to Matthew chapter one. Matthew chapter one. Here's the thing. Before we talk about what Matthew is going to say, before we talk about the what, we need to talk about Matthew's why. Okay, before we look at what he's going to say, we need to understand his mind. Why is he going to say it? As we read the first few books of Matthew, the first two chapters, I mean, of the book of Matthew, we understand what his why is. This is what he's trying to accomplish. He wants the readers of his book to understand that the person, Jesus of Nazareth, was none other than the foretold Messiah. Okay, did you guys catch that? That's the why. This is what he's wanting you to understand and wanting me to understand as we read through these first verses and chapters of the book of Matthew. He's trying to convince us that the man Jesus of Nazareth was in fact the Messiah. Now that's a big claim. That's a big claim and a big thing to try to substantiate. But Matthew has a plan and here's his plan of attack. As we go through these first few chapters, Matthew, he's going to use five promises that God made about the Messiah in the Old Testament, and he is going to show us how Jesus fulfills all of these five promises. Are you tracking with me? Matthew says this, I know, I know it might sound crazy to say that Jesus of Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth, that place is the Messiah, but what about this? What if I show you five promises that God made that he fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Matthew knows if he can get them to believe these five proofs, these five promises, that he's gonna have them for the rest of his gospel. And so he starts with proof number one. He starts off Matthew chapter one, verse one, with a genealogy. That's why he's doing this. When, I'll be honest, every time I start reading the book of Matthew and it starts with a genealogy, it's kind of a bummer. It's not my favorite thing. It feels like a really lackluster way to start the greatest story ever told. It's like he's starting it with the footnote that should be at the end for the nerds who wanna read about that kind of a thing. But this is why he's doing it. 
Because proof number one, Matthew chapter one, verse one, I wanna invite you to read with us. On the screen is the New King James Version, although <laughs> we noticed this morning, because of our decorations, I noticed people kind of playing ping pong as they were looking at the verses this morning. Uh, they're kind of cut off, but we'll do our best. If you have your own Bible, you'll follow along better. Matthew chapter one, verse one, his first proof, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, that would be the Messiah, Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Proof number one, Jeremiah chapter 23, verses five and six, along with several other Old Testament passages, said that the Messiah would come through the line of David. Now, <clears throat> to be sure, Showing that anyone came from the line of David isn't the most amazing fulfillment of God's word, right? Like at this time, certainly there were thousands of descendants of David alive that could have fit this category. But Matthew knew this was a well-known um, Bible promise, a well-known prophecy that people all across Israel would have known about. So he knew he had to start there. I mean, if he couldn't even get Jesus to clear this basic prophecy, why bother with the others? So he's starting with this saying, look, we know this. The Messiah will be born from the line of David. Let me connect the dots for you. So he starts with the genealogy. Matthew chapter one, verse two. Abraham, he's gonna take us all the way back to Abraham even, but Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah. Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez. It goes on and on for the next 16 verses. If you've ever read through it, you're gonna have a tongue twister. Although I wonder, Abner, if you could pull this off pretty well after hearing your song that you just sang. You're gonna stumble over the names, but the refrain, the cadence that develops is this. Begot, and this person begot that person. I want you to say that with me, begot. Let's say it a little faster. Begot, 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 begot. It's this cadence that works through, and it kind of sounds like maybe what it sounds like when you guys hit the rumble strip on the side of the road. Begot, 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 begot. And all of a sudden, if you've ever hit the rumble strip, and if you were sleeping, that hasn't happened to me, but if you were, you hear the noise of the rumble strip, and as soon as you stop and you hear that the rumble strip is off, you've got a question. If I'm not on the rumble strip anymore, am I on the right road, or am I going into the ditch? And this is what happens with Matthew's argument. For all of these verses, he's saying, this person begot this person, begot this person, begot this person, but there is a rude awakening. The cadence stops when we get, go to verse 15. At the end of this list, Eliad begot Eliezer, Eliezer begot Matan, Matan begot Jacob, Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Matthew's off the rumble strip. Joseph does not get a begot after his name. And we may wonder, man, proof number one, Matthew, did that just crash and burn? Because Joseph is not listed as the one begotting Jesus. Instead, attention shifts to the woman he married and the child she begot. But I don't think Matthew was worried. I mean, if he was, obviously he wouldn't have put this in there. I don't think he was worried that his argument for proof number one was off track because Matthew knew something. He knew that if he could get his readers to believe proof, promise number two about the Messiah, it would naturally clear up this whole issue of Joseph not biologically begotting Jesus. Because as it stands, Jesus needed to be adopted into the line of David. 
And some may feel like, well, is that really fulfilling the prophecy? But Matthew knew if he can get people to believe this next proof, this next promise that God wanted to fulfill about the Messiah, it would clear it up. But the next one, number two, was a big one. We find it in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Isaiah chapter 7, 14. You'll recognize it. It says this, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Promise number two about the Messiah. The Messiah would be born to a virgin. Now that's a big sell. I mean, that that narrows things considerably. From narrowing it to a pool of at least thousands of people who are descendants of David, it could be perhaps any of those people. He's getting a lot more specific now because that takes a miracle. Born to a virgin. And Matthew knows if he can get people to buy this, that Jesus of Nazareth was born to a virgin, then it naturally clears up this confusion about Joseph not begotting him because those two things can't go together. If Jesus is gonna be born by a virgin, then naturally the father, the line of David, can't really biologically begot this child. And so it clears up the confusion. If he can get him to buy proof number two, he can pull him along with proof number one. But the challenge is this. That's a hard sell. That's a hard sell to convince someone that that somehow Jesus of Nazareth was born to a virgin. Getting people to believe the idea of Jesus of Nazareth was born to a virgin mother was a difficult task. And as we pick up this story in Matthew chapter 1 verse 18, we find that it wasn't just Matthew's readers who had the hard time believing that this prophecy would be fulfilled in Mary and Jesus' life. But Joseph himself struggled to accept that Mary was a pregnant virgin. I wanna focus on this. We're not gonna look at the other three predictors. We can talk about that after the sermon if you want to. We're not gonna focus on that. We're gonna focus on proof number two. We're gonna stay right here because I think this is where we see the gift, the lesson of the gift God wants us to understand that may be lost in our lives. Pick up the story. Matthew chapter one, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. We know that. We've read Luke's gospel. Luke tells us an angel came and told Mary what was going to take place. We know that but it was a lot harder for Joseph. Which is why verse 19 says, then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and yet not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Not only was this hard for Joseph to believe, the situation must have been so painful for him as well. I mean, can you imagine the the thoughts and the emotions that must have been swirling through Joseph's head and heart? His beloved, his betrothed, his bride was pregnant and he wasn't the daddy. It was a difficult situation. Yet as difficult as it must have been for Joseph, 
the situation was considerably more distressing for Mary. Because you guys know, you've heard before, that in this time in ancient Israel, their custom of engagement was a legally binding contract. It's pretty similar to, to how our marriage contracts are today. It, it, to get out of an engagement would mean that you had to have a divorce. And it also meant that if you got together with someone else while you were engaged, it was adultery. And so for Mary, as people looked at the undeniable fact that her womb was growing larger and larger with each passing week, in everyone else's mind except for Mary's, she had committed adultery. And the Old Testament was not silence. It wasn't quiet about what the penalty for that was. It was death. It was death. But the situation's more complex, though, because for an execution to take place, for any kind of an execution to take place, there needed to be at least two witnesses. It was a safeguard that God had provided. There needed to be two witnesses. And so as people could clearly see, Mary was with child. They couldn't find two witnesses to prove that she had committed adultery. How could they? She hadn't. They wouldn't find the witnesses. And Mary wouldn't back down and condemn herself. She held true to the fact, the story that the angel told her. She held true to her purity and faithfulness to Joseph, even as her growing womb told a different story. It was complex. So they couldn't find witnesses to stone her, but Mary was not off the hook yet. Because there was another thing that she could go through when this was the case. Numbers chapter five, verse 11. We won't turn there in our Bibles today because it's a long passage. But it described what would take place if something kind of like this would happen. It was a ritual. It was a ritual that the Jewish rabbis, by the time of, of Mary's life in the, in the first century, they called it the sota. Can you guys say that with me? Sota. I want you to say it because we're gonna be talking about it a, few, a little bit here today. The sota ritual. It's buried within all of that stuff in Numbers and Leviticus. And what it was, the sota, it seems if you were to translate the Hebrew that it means the ritual for the one who has turned away by being enticed. You can essentially say, here's what you do when you have a wayward wife. That's what the ritual is about. This ritual was reserved to settle disputes when a husband thought that his wife had been unfaithful to him but had no proof of it. When he was pretty sure that something was going on but he couldn't prove it, they would have the sota. Now I want you to understand this. this as we describe this, this is kind of a, a, a crazy ritual that they would do and it's probably gonna make us feel a little uncomfortable. But I want you to understand that within the original context of the Old Testament, God had provided this ritual to protect women from unsubstantiated concerns from their husbands. 
It, it was something that God provided because in other ancient cultures, if a, hundred, a husband didn't like something that their wife was doing or had a suspicion of her, she could be killed immediately just because that's what he thought. God protected the women in the Israelite culture by saying, no, 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 no. If we don't have witnesses of something going on, you need to take what has been a private matter and we are now going to make it a public matter. This isn't going to fall upon the whim of a husband to decide if there are no witnesses and you have concerns, we're taking this from the realm of a private matter to a public matter. And so this ritual was a public ritual. And man, was it an ordeal. It, it was a big ordeal. Here, here's both Numbers chapter five. You can read about it later today if you want to, starting in verse 11. And then also later rabbinical writings describe what would take place during the Sota. This was a big deal. It was actually, we can be sure that it was happening during the time of Mary and Joseph because later on when the Talmud was written, which is a collection of Mishnah or teachings of the, of the rabbis, they devoted an entire book that's titled Sota, an entire book that described all the nuances of what needed to happen for this to take place. And they tell stories, case studies of this actually happening. So here's in brief what it was. The accused woman would be brought before the priest at the temple, and she'd stand in a public place. She would be partially uncovered, symbolically showing the desire of the community for the truth to be uncovered. She would hold a sacrifice in her hands. The priest would then come and would reach down to the floor of the temple and pick up some of the ashes from the burnt sacrifices. He'd gather it in his hand and grab some of the, the ceremonial water. He would mix them together, creating what was known as a bitter mixture. He'd bring this before the woman. And then he would speak and write a conditional curse upon the woman. He would say it out loud. And then he would actually write the words of that curse. And the curse was essentially this. It was conditional. If you're guilty, may God rot you away. I mean, that's essentially what it is. It's pretty blunt. May God rot you away. And the other side of that would be, if God doesn't rot you away, we'll know you're not guilty. That was the curse. The curse was spoken. It was written. And then the priest would take the curse that had been written on apparently a parchment or something like that, and it doesn't say exactly what happened, but apparently it had been written with charcoal or soot or something, because the priest would then take that written curse and brush it off into that mixture of ash and water, symbolically showing that the curse was there. The woman would agree and say, yes, let it be done to me if it's true, and she would take the bitter water, the curse, and drink it. And then they would wait. She'd wait to see if anything happened. The husband would wait, the priest, the whole community, waiting to see God's judgment. It was, it was a spectacle. It was a public event. The woman was made an example of. Now, I do want to remind you again, when God initiated this, there is actually a lot of protection here because un unlike other religious trials in history, 
that they've put the burden of being innocent on God to prove. Essentially, essentially in this way, we can think about some of the, the trials in our own country's early history where people were suspected of, of doing something wrong. Essentially, the community would say, we're gonna put you to death because we think that there's something wrong with you, but if you're innocent, God will save you. And it put the burden on God to intervene to save these people. At least this, what God had prescribed, was twisted to be in the woman's favor. No one would hurt her. No one would lay a hand on her unless God himself intervened. But still, I mean, what a public spectacle. What an ordeal. I mean, how, do you, how does a marriage bounce back from that? It, it was a crazy situation. We get the impression that oftentimes after the woman took the drink, nothing happened. Surprise, surprise. We get the impression that nothing happened because by the time the rabbis were writing about it, they had extended the time for the curse to take place by like 100 days or something like that. It just shows that probably a lot of times this was unsubstantiated things happening. What a horrific public example was made. That term, public example, or public spectacle, depending on which translation you have, is no doubt what Joseph had in mind in Matthew chapter 1, verse 19. Joseph was described as being a righteous man. It means he wanted to follow the law of God. It says this, then Joseph, her husband, being a just man or a righteous man, in the book of Matthew, when Matthew's talking about righteousness, it's almost always within the context of fulfilling the law. That's what it's about. So when it's saying that Joseph was a righteous man, it's telling us Joseph was someone who was trying to follow God's laws. Joseph was trying, someone who was trying to do things right. And then it says this, and yet not wanting to make a public example of her. He wanted to follow God's laws, but he didn't want to put her through this. I mean, what's the point anyways? Clearly she's pregnant. Why, why bother? So being a just man and yet not wanting to make a public example of her, Joseph had in mind to put her away secretly. Presumably, he would divorce her. He would do it quietly. He, he found a way to honor the law of God, the Old Testament, but skipped this by presumably not intending to make the charge of adultery on her, therefore bypassing the need for the soda to take place in her life and for her not to be made a public example before her community. It was Joseph's best attempt to uphold God's law and yet be gracious in the midst of a heart-wrenching situation. Still, Still, I wonder, I wonder if we may respectfully question if Joseph's response was motivated by fear. I say this respectfully. I, I think we may wonder as we look into this story a little bit more deeply, if what's going on here is not necessarily stemming from Joseph's righteousness and kind heart, but perhaps stemming from fear. The, the first clue that makes us wonder this is in the next verse, we're gonna find out that an angel comes to visit Joseph, and the words on the angel's lips are, do not be afraid. 
Now, this is common in the story of the nativity. We can think of two other stories where an angel visits, right? Angel visits Zachariah. Zachariah sees the angel and is afraid of who? The angel. And so the angel says, no, don't be afraid of me. An angel comes to Mary in the Gospel of Luke and says, Mary, don't be afraid of me. But when the angel will come to Joseph, the message is specific. Do not be afraid to take Mary to be your wife. The angel is saying and alluding to what we may not identify with. The angel saying and letting us know that what was in Joseph's heart was apparently fear, which seems crazy to me. To, to me, if I'm reading this story, I, I was reading this and thinking, how, where is the fear in Joseph from this? I mean, it kind of feels like the angel is showing up and completely misnaming the emotion that I imagine Joseph would be experiencing. Has that ever happened to you guys? Where you've been trying to explain how you feel to someone, maybe in a heated moment, you try to explain how you're feeling and they respond back to you and completely misname how you feel. Uh, you know, an example could be like, okay, honey, honey, I hear you. I forgot to pick up the kids from school yesterday and they were left outside and I know that you're really angry. I'm not angry. I'm disappointed. If you've ever had someone miscall the emotion you're experiencing, it's frustrating. And it's hard not to read this and feel like that's what's happening with the angel. And if I was Joseph and the angel came to me and said, it's okay, it's okay, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary to be your wife. It's like, I'm not afraid. I'm angry. I'm not afraid about this situation of my bride having a child with somebody else. I'm heartbroken. Where is fear coming from in this? It doesn't seem to make sense unless, unless the angel's right. Unless the angel understands something that, that we may not get at first glance, I think that the angel did have it right. In this acknowledgement of fear, is evidence of the real struggle Joseph was having. A struggle to believe that God's word could be filled, fulfilled in his life. I think the fear that is mentioned is an evidence of Joseph's real struggle, which was a fear that God could fulfill his spoken word in Joseph's life. Here's why I say that. It's hard to imagine Joseph not knowing God's word, God's prophecy, God's promise that the Messiah would be born to a virgin. Now, there's a few reasons. You may disagree with me at first, but listening to this reasoning, I think it's a little bit of a stretch to assume that Joseph a descendant of David would not have been aware that the Messiah had been promised by God and his word to be born a virgin. Here's why I think this. Joseph was from the line of who? David. We've talked about this, right? He's from the line of David. That means that while certainly there were thousands of eligible males that the Messiah could come from, it could have been him. He was in the running. This was a real possibility, and it's hard to imagine that he wouldn't have some knowledge of this because if you're in the running for something, you want to make a, a pay attention to it. 
I mean, if you're not positioned for something happening, you can kind of disregard the information. But if you know that it might be you, you perk up and listen a little bit more. How many of you guys have flown commercially before? Have you guys, you guys all done this maybe? Flown commercially. There's an example. If you've flown commercially and you wanted to get a little bit more leg room in the plane, which I hear is something that tall people want. That's a tall person problem. It's not my issue. That's your thing. If you want some more leg room, you might sit in the safety row exit, right? You sit there, you kick back, you put your legs out there. There's this little safety exit door sign there. But if you sit there, if you've ever sat there, you know what happens. Before that plane takes off, a flight attendant's going to come up to you with a terrifying comic book about what you will do, described in vivid pictures, if this plane bursts into flames, you will be called upon to do what? Open that safety door. They'll even ask you, right, before you take off, sir, are you prepared to open the safety door? You feel like the whole, the whole plane's watching and waiting to hear, like, this guy better be good. He better say yes. Here's the thing. Nobody else in the plane has to read that creepy, terrifying little pamphlet thing. Why? Because it doesn't apply to them. They're not sitting in the right row. They're not positioned to need that information, so they can check out. And in a similar way, I can imagine that Jewish men, if they were from the tribe of Gad, in, in, the, in the synagogue, they started talking about messianic prophecies, they could check out. Hey, that's not me. I'm out. I'm Gad. Or if they were from Zebulun, I could see that when they're talking about the details of messianic prophecy, they're like, uh-uh, that's you. You guys, uh, Judah, tribe of Judah, you're David's people. That's you. You guys pay attention to that. I'm going to follow this other stuff. They could check out, but surely David... A descendant, he knows he's positioned. These, these descendants of David, they know they're positioned to be in the running for this. And so it's a little hard for me to not imagine that at some point in Joseph's life and in the life of perhaps every descendant of David, that some older descendant kind of takes him aside and says, yep, yeah. An older descendant comes and says, hey, as a descendant of David, you know, kind of special. We have a special code that we live by that you need to be aware of. Four things you need to know. First of all, if you ever have to get in a fight, choose a stone over a sword. Second of all, never grow your hair out long because it could get caught in a tree and you don't want that to happen. Third of all, we never take sucker punches at people when they're lost in caves. We don't do it. And fourth of all, um, you could be in the running to be the father of the Messiah who might be born to a virgin. All right, have a great day. Surely, surely something like this would take place. He was in the running for it. Okay, even if you don't buy that, we don't know. I've never seen extra biblical examples of this taking place, but at least this. Matthew chapter one, verse 19. It describes Joseph as being a righteous man. And we've already talked about how in the book of Matthew, righteousness is connected to the idea of following God's law. If Joseph was a righteous man, then it means that Joseph knew God's word. Joseph knew and was a student of what God had said. It gets even more crazy. In the story of Luke chapter four, Jesus is all grown up now. You guys might remember this story. Luke chapter four, Jesus is all grown up. He goes to his hometown synagogue in Nazareth, which was also the hometown of who? Joseph, right? This is Joseph's synagogue. This is where Joseph grew up. This is where Joseph got his religious education. Jesus, this is just a, a story in passing. Jesus goes, Luke chapter four on Sabbath to his local synagogue. It says there's a scroll of the book of the Old Testament there. They hand it to Jesus. He picks it up and he reads it. Who can tell me what that book is? The book of Isaiah. 
Incidentally, the only book, while we might assume that the whole collection of the Hebrew Old Testament was taught and available at the synagogue in Nazareth, the one book we know was there was the book of Isaiah, the very book that told of the prophecy that the Messiah would be born to a virgin. And so as I think about this, it makes me wonder, when Joseph heard the report that Mary's pregnant, it's unlikely he even got to hear that from Mary. It was probably her dad who had to share that news with him. And as he heard this, this awkward report, yeah, she's pregnant and she says it's an angel talked to her. She claimed she was faithful to you, but that this is God's child. That should have been a possibility on the table. Why? Because God had said it would happen. This should have been at least a possibility to be considered. Which makes me wonder if the greatest struggle Joseph was facing was not whether to believe if God could fulfill his word, not if God could make a virgin produce this Messiah. It's doubting whether or not God would fulfill that in his life. Do you get the difference? That's oh, fine, God. You can fulfill that in someone else's life, but not in mine. Maybe not in my life. Maybe you've struggled with that before yourself. This concept, this, this type of dualistic faith that says, God, I believe you're big and you're powerful and I love to hear the stories of when you're doing amazing things, when you're fulfilling your word in other people's lives. And so we read through the scriptures and we love the story of how God promises to make Abraham into a great nation and we're cheering, you get him, God. But when it comes to believing that God can give you his peace in the midst of your storm, no faith. That's not for me. Or maybe we rejoice. We love hearing the stories of God fulfilling his word and changing lives. And we love to hear the story about Justin Bieber accepting Christ or Denzel or your friend or whoever it is. We love these stories and yet we stop. When it comes to God fulfilling his word in our life, we check out. Uh-uh. That's not going to happen in my life. Why do we do that? I mean, what is that? This kind of faith that we can let live that allows us to believe in God's bigness and power as long as he's not trying to bring it into our lives. If you've ever felt like Joseph must have felt, my prayer this morning is that you can learn what Joseph learned. That in the midst of your doubts, when you wonder if God's word is meant to be fulfilled in your life, be sure that God's word, God is working to fulfill his word in your life. Did you catch that? God will move heaven and earth to see his word fulfilled. That's what happened to Joseph. When he struggled to imagine God fulfilling his word in his life, God sent Joseph help. 
in the form of an angel. Let's read about it. Go back to your Bibles. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. But while he thought about these things, I love this. For Joseph, all he had was his plan. All he had was damage control. But God had something else in mind. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she shall bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Isn't this beautiful? It's as if God sends an angel to say to Joseph, Joseph, this promise that I made all of those hundreds of years ago, I know it's crazy. This promise that generations of your people have been waiting to see come to fruition. I'm going to make this happen in your life. This isn't for someone else. This is for you. God comes and he shares this information. And then in verse 22, he explains why this is happening. It says this. So all of this, all of what was going on, listen to this, was done that it might be fulfilled. That it might be fulfilled. What's the it? The word God had spoken. Found in the prophet Isaiah, verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. When God speaks a promise, he will move heaven and earth to see it fulfilled. When someone is struggling to believe that that promise could come into their life, God will not leave you alone in the struggle. He will move heaven and earth to see it fulfilled in your life. Joseph, Joseph believed again. In fact, it's almost as if the climax of the story is over because the rest of it just feels like a footnote, even though it's spectacular. We, we know what it is. But verse 24 and 25, then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And She called his name Jesus. What about you? What word, what promise has God spoken over you that fear is making you believe is too far out of reach for you? Maybe it's the promise to heal a broken heart. Maybe it's God's promise to set you free. Maybe it's God's promise to give you peace in the midst of the storm that you're facing. What word has God spoken that he wants to fulfill in your life? What promise do you know God has said? And yet every time you think about this showing up in your life, fear takes over and kills it. I don't know what comes to your mind. So I was praying about this this week. A, a specific promise came to my mind. It may be for you. I know it's for someone. Before the promise, let me say the problem. 
within our church, there's a history of people living in fear of not being accepted by Christ. Within our church, there is fear of the judgment. There's fear that we will be found not good enough. And what's crazy about this fear, as is often the case with this type of thing, is that fear is allowed to coexist in the same heart as a robust faith. And so the person who has this fear can also be a person of faith, a person who has faith that God is amazing, that God can move mountains, that God is for them, that God is powerful. And yet at the same time, fear is there that God's promises won't be fulfilled in their own lives. And so we can call ourselves a people of faith, even as our hearts daily scream out, in fear, fear that when Christ comes again, that we'll be uncovered for who we really are. Fear that we'll be exposed as sinners. Fear that with the entire universe watching, we'll be made a public example in front of everyone, a public spectacle as we try to get into the back line of the sheep, but are ushered into the crowd of goats with the stinging words, depart from me, I never knew you. And so for some of you, a life of faith has become a life of believing so many beautiful things about what God can do for someone else. In the best case, Existence is living with this hope, this, this uncomfortable hope that trusting when God judges that somehow it will be okay. It's almost as if you live within your own personal sota. You live in fear that you will be uncovered for who you really are. You finish each day with the bitter taste of the curse of the law. And so you wait, fearing the judgment, fearing that you will be made a public example, fearing that you will be made a public spectacle. You know that term, public example, that, that term that we just read about in Matthew's story, that thing that Matthew didn't want to happen to Mary do you know that term is only used one other time in the Bible? It's not common. It's not a common phrase in the Greek. Just one other place. Public spectacle, public example. And what's shocking and perhaps disconcerting is that in this second and only other place that that term public spectacle is used, Jesus is the one making someone a spectacle. And that's heavy. That's heavy because if God wants to do something, he's gonna do it. So maybe our worst fears are true. Maybe we should fear the judgment. I wanna invite you to look at that only other place it's mentioned. Turn with me in your Bibles, Colossians. Chapter two, verse 13 and 14. 
Paul's talking to the church, trying to explain to them what's going on. Listen to this. Colossians chapter two, verse 13. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Uh Uh-oh. It is not starting out well. It's stating what we already know. We're guilty. We've sinned. But it doesn't stop. You being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive with him. That's good news. Having forgiven you of your trespasses, that's that's good news too. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements which was against us, which was contrary to us. Okay, maybe there it is. We see that imagery, the, the, the writing of the law, the curse of the law. It says that God wiped it away. Did he wipe this curse into a cup that he intends for you to drink? He continues on and it says this. He has wiped away the law, handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having done what? Having nailed it to the cross. Amen having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed. This word in Greek is the same word as uncovered, as stripped. It's the same concept of what would happen to the woman in soda. She would be uncovered. And here we're telling that Jesus is also going to strip someone, not someone, but something. Having disarmed, having stripped, not you, not a person, but the principalities and powers. What are the principalities and powers? It's sin. It's evil. It's saying that Jesus came and he uncovered sin and evil, the things that hold power over your life. He stripped them and showed them powerless. And it goes on. Having done this, he made them a public spectacle. There it is. The only other time this phrase is used, it's right there. And it's not meant for you. It's meant for what Jesus came to do for sin. He stripped them of their power. He stripped them and made them a public example, triumphing over them. This last part, the Greek that's used there when it says triumphing over, this Greek wording is also kind of rare and it's specific. It's describing what would happen. It's describing a victory parade. After the victory's already been won, they would take the captured enemy soldiers and parade them through the victor's town for one sole purpose. To show that the battle was over. To show that there was no danger anymore. And that's what this is trying to tell us. That Jesus came not to make a public spectacle out of you. He took the evil that held power over your life and exposed it as powerless. And then triumphed over it this Christmas season. My prayer is that you remember that Jesus wasn't born to make a spectacle of you. He wasn't born to make a spectacle of your mistakes. Jesus was born to forgive you. He wasn't born to make you drink the curse of the law. He was born to nail it to the cross. He wasn't born to uncover you and leave you vulnerable. He was born to uncover the powerless state of sin and evil and the things that hold power over you and show that they were powerless as they stood naked and uncovered in his mighty presence. 
He was born to strip them of their power. He wasn't born so that you could tiptoe through life wondering, wondering how things would turn out for you in the judgment. He was born so that you could dance in the parade of his all-sufficient sacrifice of his defeat over sin. Oh, God came for a purpose. He came to fulfill his word in your life. What's his word for you? Find out the story of me. God has a promise for you today that he has every intention of fulfilling in your life, just as surely as he worked and moved heaven and earth to see that his word, his prophecy, his promise would be fulfilled in the life of Joseph. He wants to move heaven and earth to make sure this promise and prophecy is fulfilled in your life. The promise he has, the promise he gave to you is the same as the name he gave to his son. Matthew chapter one, verse 20. Verse 21, this is the promise. And she shall bring forth a son and you shall call his name what? Why? Here's your promise. What's the promise that Jesus wants you to hear? What does he want to fulfill in your heart? It's this. He will save you from your sins. Amen? That's why Jesus was born. He was born to see that fulfilled in your life. Jesus will save his people from their sins. God sent Jesus to fulfill his word, his promise of salvation in your life. He sent Jesus who was uncovered on the cross so that you might be clothed in his righteousness. He sent Jesus, who chose to not let the cup pass from his mouth, but instead drank it so that you could drink freely of his forgiveness and grace. We can dance through life with the assurance of God's favor in the judgment because Jesus crawled through the streets of Jerusalem with the burden of a cross and the burden of your sins. God has spoken his word. He has declared his purpose. He has declared his promise for your life. And you can be sure that what God has spoken, God is working to fulfill. So this morning, this season, this Christmas, I don't know where you are. And I don't know what struggle you're facing. But God does. Remember that God's desire is to fulfill his word, to fulfill his promise in your life. Believe in God. Believe he is near. Believe he is working so that his promise will be fulfilled in you. This morning, if you want to say, God, I believe your word. I believe your promise for me I believe that you want to fulfill in my life what you have spoken over me. If that's your desire this morning,
I invite you to stand. Lord, this morning we stand as a first step to recommitting or starting for the first time a different approach to life. An approach to life that's not based off of fear. An approach to life that's not based about wondering if we're good enough. An approach to life that doesn't base the success of our Christian walk on our faith, but on your faithfulness. Father, for those standing here today, for those listening online, for those who may still be seated, Lord, we pray collectively that your word may be fulfilled in our life. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. this reminder this Christmas season of your purpose for sending your son born to a world not to condemn but to save to give hope to fulfill your word in our lives for this we thank you we praise you Lord we ask that you would be with each of us as we go throughout the rest of our day throughout the rest of our week live in our hearts chase away fear and let your word be fulfilled in us. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to thank you for worshiping with us here today, the College Dell Community Church. We hope you have a wonderful week and a blessed Christmas.